You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. everyone unbelievably excited about the episode that we have for you today we are getting the opportunity to speak with james clear author of atomic habits i mean this is if he is not a household name he is one that you will be bonding with quickly because the information that he's put together the synthesis in this book i mean it will change your life i say this to say right now his book is number 11 on all of Amazon, all of Amazon books has, he blew by that 1 million books sold within the first like eight or nine, 10, 11 months of this thing. And and I, I understand why. I think all of us understand there's cues in our life that drive us towards actions. And we don't always understand why it is. There's belief systems that we've imprinted on our brain. We don't understand why we do the things that we do. Sometimes they drive us to really good places and sometimes they destroy aspects of our life. What if you could see the patterns? And then if you could see the pattern, you could actually implement a change, drive yourself in a different direction. We're getting this opportunity to really explore this framework today. And I am incredibly excited about this conversation. Help me with this. I am my co-host, Brad, here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. And yeah, you talk about patterns. We pick up things and we talk about them here on Shoesify. And a few of them are identity. How many times have we talked about this? I'm the type of person that dot, dot, dot. That's something that we think makes for a better life. And I just loved reading about that in Atomic Habits. It's so cool when you when you have these concepts that work in your own life, and then you see them again and again in places that you trust. And systems versus goals. This we've talked about from Scott Adams repeatedly, from how to fail at almost everything and still win big. And to see it here in Atomic Habits, I loved it because these are crucial items that I've improved my own life over the last five years. So incredibly excited to welcome James to the podcast. So James, with that, welcome to Choose of I. Hi, yeah, great to talk to both of you. Thank you for having me. So James, I want to actually go back, you know, before you're one of, you know, the country and the world's foremost habits experts, you're a guy that gets hit in the face with a baseball bat and has this near death experience. I would imagine that you're connecting the dots as an adult, but at the time, this is one of those really traumatizing events and you don't have the language then that maybe you have now. And I'm just curious if you were to look back on that as you're going through this, because you were kind of trailblazing the, even then I see you connecting the dots in this book, but I'm curious, what, what was it that drove you towards this, this, when everybody else is out partying, you're out there just following this plan. What was the motivation for that? So you're certainly right. I did not have a language for it at the time. Uh, if you were to go to me when I, so I, I suffered this injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat and the fallout from that was very significant. I had uh, multiple seizures, had to be air cared to the hospital, was placed into a medically induced coma. For the next eight or nine months, I couldn't drive a car. I had double vision. My first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns like walking in a straight line. That was a time in my life when I had to start small, when I had to build small habits because that was the only option that I had. I couldn't just flip a switch and go back to the normal, young, healthy person that I was. Those small habits were like pretty insignificant at the time. You know, things like you mentioned, preparing for an hour before class or going to bed at the same time every night or 
this was the first time in my life when I started training consistently in the gym at first once or twice a week and then three or four times. None of those seem significant by themselves, but they gave me a sense of control over my life. And uh, I felt like I was able to kind of rebound and regain some composure after that. So it was a long arc from the injury to ultimately, I ended up having a good, successful college baseball career and being named the academic All-America team and a variety of other things. But that that took a, a five or six year span for that to happen, for those small habits to accrue. If you were to come up to me at that time or through that process and ask, oh, you know, how are, the, how are things going? I never would have said like, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better. But now that that's the kind of language that I would have, or that's the language that the book is built around. So I think I very much first came to these ideas as like a practitioner, as someone who just kind of learned it through experience and went through life and soaked up those experiences and maybe stumbled my way to learning what was working for me. And then it's now only after six or seven or eight years of writing and researching and investigating the topic of habits and habit formation more deeply that I have a better language for describing what exactly is going on. James, I'm curious how you see through the short term for the long term when you're formulating habits or in our case for financial independence. I think so many people struggle with, will that one decision make any difference, right? Mm -hmm. How do I see it? How do I get beyond that short-termism to realize, okay, this aggregation of marginal gains will add up over time? Yeah, it's a good question because the idea of getting 1% better on any given day, a choice that's 1% better, 1% worse, seems pretty insignificant. Like, you know, what is the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? Not a whole lot on any given day. You know, like your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. Scale hasn't really changed. And certainly that's true when it comes to saving money and building up a retirement nest egg and so on. You know, any individual saving action doesn't seem to make that much difference or choosing to buy, uh, you know, splurge on some purchase doesn't seem to be that impactful. So it's very easy to dismiss the importance of 1% changes. I have this little story that I like to tell that I feel like illustrates this. Imagine that you walk into a room, it's cold, you can see your breath, you've got this ice cube sitting on the table in front of you. It's like 25 degrees. And slowly you start to heat the room up 26, 27, 28, ice cube is still sitting there 29, 30, 31. And then all of a sudden you go from 31 to 32 degrees and it's a one degree shift, just like all the ones that came before it. But you hit this phase transition, this tipping point, and the ice cube starts to melt. The process of building habits or changing habits and getting results is often a lot like that. You're showing up each day and you're putting work in and you hear people say things like this. They'll say like, I've been running for a month. Why can't I see a change in my body? Or I've been working on this book for six months now. The outline's still a mess. I feel like I haven't made any progress. The truth is complaining about working for a little while, working hard and not having the results you want is kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube in 25 to 31 degrees and it not melting yet. The work is not wasted. It's just being stored. The San Antonio Spurs NBA basketball team, they've won five championships. They've got this quote in their locker room that I feel like encapsulates this idea. It says something to the effect of, when I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock a hundred times without it showing a crack. And then on the 101st below, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the hundred that came before. And I think you can say that about pretty much any one of your habits. It's not the last sentence you write that writes the book. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last workout you did that changes your body. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last entry into your uh, savings account that leads to retirement. It's all the ones that came before. So seeing through the short term for the, and seeing the long term, 
is really about embracing that idea. So embracing that idea that the work is not being wasted, it's just being stored. You're building up the potential energy to release at a later point. You know, your book is is full of huge ideas, life-changing ideas and providing a language to those. There's this phrase and it's tied to 1% better, but it just, I think our audience, it's going to resonate. In the book, you say habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. I want to talk about that compounding effect. I want to talk about in the context of productivity, stress, knowledge, negative thoughts, relationships, outrage. Like, can you provide for our audience just a few examples of, of what, like what that frame is, that compounding effect in some of these different aspects of an individual's life? That idea that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement, it's basically like the same way that money multiplies through compound interest. The effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And we could say this about pretty much any area in life, like your the results that you experience are often a lagging measure of your habits. So your your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial and saving habits. Your body and physical fitness is a lagging measure of your training and eating habits. And the hallmark of any compounding process is that the greatest returns are delayed. And so you really need patience to let those things to start to accrue and compound. So to take knowledge, for example, no, reading one book will not make you a genius, but a commitment to a habit of lifelong learning and a commitment to a habit of reading. Well, now all of a sudden those things, it's not just that like you add one book to the pile of what you've read. You also, each time you read a new book, you make connections with all the old books that you've read. You have a new way to look at all the previous ideas that you've consumed. And so there's this like compounding nature of how ideas connect together and build on top of each other. Uh, it's not just one thing. Productivity is another one you mentioned. No, working for 10 extra minutes or making the extra sales call today or putting in a little bit of extra effort, that's not going to lead to radically different productivity. But a habit of always making the extra sales call, well, over the course of a career, 10, 20, 30 years, that can really compound in a very significant way. And so it's really about using that 1% improvement as something that you do as a daily habit. And that, that I think is why habits matter so much. They, they provide this little advantage uh, that you can start to compound day after day. And this is why I say, like, if you have good habits, time becomes your ally. You just need to let time work for you. If you have bad habits, then time is your enemy. And now every day that clicks by, you're putting yourself a little bit deeper uh, into the hole. You know, in your book, you're talking about this idea of goals versus systems. And I very much in time, I, I can point to like times where I've focused on like smart goals and, and I'm not writing that out of hand, but I want to say that, you know, goals, when you, when you're this, this kid that's had this incredibly traumatizing event and you're working to this, I, I'm curious how you were even in that process, cultivating this idea, I need to build systems and somewhat to, to some degree, separating out the importance of building systems versus the important, I think there's something huge here. For, for our audience in terms of realizing you build a structure to force a result. And, and I, for me, that was a huge reframe. Before I criticize goals a little bit, I should say like, this is coming from someone who's very goal oriented for a long time, right? Like I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in school, the weights I wanted to lift in the gym, how much money I wanted to make in my business, all kinds of stuff. And at some point I started to realize that setting the goal actually didn't have that big of an impact on whether I achieved it or not. And, and what I mean by that is there were many goals that I set that I didn't achieve at all. So clearly setting the goal was not the thing, was not the determinant. And you, you see this actually in many different industries. Often the winners and the losers, so to speak, have the same goals. If a hundred people apply for a job, 
all the candidates have the goal of getting the job. If uh, 30 teams are competing in the league for a championship, every team has the goal of winning the championship. And so if the goal is the same between the winners and the losers, it cannot be the thing that makes the difference. It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. So what that did was once I started to have that little bit of that realization, and then you mentioned Scott Adams earlier, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal where he kind of unpacked that language as well. And he mentions this idea of systems over goals. The way that I would define this and link this back to habits is that your goal, your goal is your desired outcome. It's what you're hoping will happen in the future. But your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there's ever a gap between your goal and your system, there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your habits will always win. The system will always overpower the goal. Whatever system you have right now, whatever collection of habits that you have, they are inevitably moving you towards some outcome. And that outcome may or may not be aligned with the desired outcome you have in mind, with the goal that you have in mind. And so ultimately, what we need is an alignment between the two. And for whatever reason, we tend to live in a world that is very results oriented. You only hear about things once they become a result. You only hear about the book once it becomes a bestseller or the Broadway show once it becomes a hit. You'll never see a news story that is like a man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. It's only a story once man loses 100 pounds. And I think because of us only seeing results, social media, the news, whatever it is, we tend to overvalue the goal, overvalue the outcome and undervalue the system. The results of success are often highly visible and shared, they're public, and the process behind success is invisible and hidden from view. And yet, it's actually the process that is more important. We, we think that what needs to change are the outcomes or the results we have. Everybody wants better results. It's like, if you look at your bedroom and it's messy, you're like, well, I have a goal of having a clean room. I want a different result. I want the room to be clean and organized. And you might get motivated for an hour or two and clean it, and you'll have a clean room for now. But if you don't change the sloppy, messy pack rat habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then you end up in the same place two or three or four days later, right? You have a messy room again. And so we think that the results need to change, but actually it's the habits behind the results. It's the system behind the goal that needs the real focus. James, I'm curious regarding systems. How often do you go back and assess critically your own systems. Let's talk about weightlifting. I know that's a huge aspect of your life. Do you set goals at all, or is it solely focused on systems? And when we talk about systems, are you critically assessing that? Are you looking at 1% better, or are you fairly confident with the system you have set up? Yeah, good question. So two kind of, uh, I think, important, maybe philosophical points to touch on first before I answer the weightlifting piece. The first is, do you measure 1% better? Do you, you know, try to quantify that or whatever? The idea of getting 1% better each day, I think it should, it's more useful if it's embraced as like a philosophy, as in I'm always looking for some small advantage or I'm trying to find some way to get better today. Like a person can always improve that, that kind of mentality rather than saying, is this exactly 1% or is this like 0.75 or is that 2.3 today? Like I, I think at that point you're getting too much into the weeds, like missing the actual purpose. And then the kind of second philosophical point is that sometimes you mention goals and systems, and then if people want to be very pedantic or nitpicky about it, they'll say, well, it sounds like actually your goal is to stick to the daily habit. And it's like, okay, again, I feel like we're missing the forest for the trees here. The real point is 
what matters is that you're trying to show up and do something consistently rather than pin your identity or your self-worth or your entire vision on a single outcome or trying to define the future. The way I think about this and integrating it into my own life, whether it's weightlifting or business or somewhere else, is that people who focus on goals are short-term thinking, tend to exhibit short-term thinking and are focused on winning one time. Whereas people who focus on systems exhibit longer term thinking and are focused on winning repeatedly. So it's not that results don't matter in life. Results do matter. And the world is actually quite outcome focused. But it's that by embracing the system and building a better system, you can win again and again. Whereas if you're just focused on racing this one marathon, now you don't have the goal to propel you after the race is over. And so the system is more cyclical and almost like an infinite game whereas a goal is a more finite, contained, short-term game. So that's kind of, I think, a, an important philosophical approach to understand. As far as how I apply it to weightlifting, I have gone through various phases. I've been training in the gym for over a decade now. And so at some points, I've done programs where I've had like a really firm goal that I wanted to hit. And I spent six months working on it or a year working on it and did different training blocks for it. And then at other times, like right now, I have just tried to show up each day and get my reps in. And the funny thing is, I think my progress has been roughly the same as long as I don't miss workouts. And that, again, is a definition of sticking to the system. So whether or not I really wanted to hit a number or not actually was not nearly as important as am I getting my reps in. I actually came across a piece of paper. I wrote this goal down when I was a sophomore in college, long before I had any of this language or described it in this way. I wrote down a goal for a weight I wanted to hit on bench press. 11 years later, I hit it long after I actually wanted to hit the goal and long after I'd like forgotten about writing it down. And the only reason that happened is because for the two or three years before I hit it, I didn't miss workouts. There's not really that much mystery to it. It's the more that you stick to the system, the more the results follow naturally. And so I don't want to act like I haven't had goals. As I mentioned, like I was very goal oriented for a long time. I've had them in a lot of different areas, but whether or not you achieve them has very little to do with the goal itself. And this is why I'd summarize it and say, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. It does not matter whether you have the goal or not, the system will take you there inevitably if you stick to it. You know, I'm curious when you're going through that dip, if you will, and, and you're talking about never miss a workout, part of that comes from your identity and you can spill this over. And I love, and Brad was set up the episode by talking about this, but you go into great depth about how your identity drives many of your habits and how, if you recognize that you can slowly reframe, use this incredible example of two smokers that are trying to quit help our audience. What's the language that you uncovered for what is the story you tell yourself about yourself and how does that spill over into your actual actions, either consciously or unconsciously? There's a lot to discuss here. So let me kind of attack it from a few different angles. The first division is that you can have either an outcome-based habit, which is what most people do. They say something like, I want to lose 30 pounds in the next six months. And they focus on that outcome, or I want to double my income or something like that. And then usually you can imagine it's kind of like the layers of an onion. On the outermost layer, you've got the outcome. I want to lose weight. Then you go one layer in. That's your habits or your process. So it's like uh, in order to lose weight, I need to go to the gym four days a week. Usually the implicit assumption is if I follow this process and I hit this outcome, then I'll be the person I want to be. That it'll like kind of naturally, we'll let it come naturally. And my argument is, so that's an outcome-based habit. You start with the outcome, you let the identity fall naturally. 
But we can actually invert that process. So the innermost layer of the onion is your identity, who you wish to become. And if instead of asking what result do I want, you can ask who is the type of person that could get that result? Sure, maybe you want to lose 30 pounds. Who is the type of person that could lose weight? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so now your focus becomes on building a workout habit and being that type of person. And rather than letting the identity come naturally, you let the result come naturally. So you focus on who we wish to become first. You build habits that reinforce that desired identity. And then you let the results come naturally. A second point that I want to make about this, which comes back to the smoking example you mentioned, is that the reason identity is so crucial is that all behaviors are tied to an internal narrative, an internal story to a certain degree. You can almost view view your habits like a story that you tell when the context is right. So when you put a shoe on your foot and it's untied, that context that you play the little I should tie my shoe script in your brain, you put, play that little story. But then it's not just for simple things like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes. It's kind of how you build all habits. And so it's one thing to say like, I'm the type of person who wants this. It's something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this, to have a different story attached to it. And that's why I say like true behavior changes, identity change. So in the smoking example, you walk up to someone and uh, you got two people there and you offer them a cigarette. First person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. Second person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. It's the same action. They're both declining the cigarette. But the first person still identifies as somebody who smokes and they're trying to do something that they're not. And the second person no longer identifies as a smoker. That shift in identity, it signals a shift in motivation, a shift in internal story. You don't really have to convince yourself to do it as much because you're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already see yourself to be. I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of reasons habits matter. Habits can help you get six-pack abs or lose weight or make more money or reduce stress. And it's true. They can do all of those things. But the real reason that habits matter is that they reinforce your desired identity. They, anytime you perform a habit, habits are your behavior is how you like embody a particular identity. Every time you um, save a little money for retirement, you embody the identity of someone who is a saver, who is financially independent. Every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you study for 20 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who is studious. Each time you do these things, doing it once does not like radically transform how you think about yourself. But if you show up and do it again and again, then it's like you're casting votes for being that kind of person. And I think that's the best summary of the link between habits and behavior, which is every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And the more that you show up and perform those habits, the more you cast votes for being that person. And so no, doing one push-up does not transform your body overnight, but it does cast a vote for I'm a type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the book, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And eventually, as the evidence builds up and you have proof to root that identity and belief in, you actually start to see yourself in that new way. And that's like the real secret of habits is that they give you a pathway to change the internal story, to change the way that you see yourself, to build up self-confidence and remove self-doubt. Yeah, James, that's interesting because I was waiting to read that exact line on page 38. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. I love that. These small things really do add up. And I'm curious, on your own identity, how has this journey changed how you look at yourself? 
Like, What's the type of identity you tell yourself about yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. It's definitely shifted. And I'll, uh, so let me share like a struggle I had with it. And kind of, I think this is something that's fairly common when people are dealing with this. The danger is that you let a single belief, a single aspect of your identity uh, overpower everything else. Because if you hold on, if you cling too tightly to one identity, it becomes hard to grow beyond it. You can view yourself as like a collection of identities. Like you might be a dad and a brother and um, a son and a volunteer and an entrepreneur and a bunch of other things, right? Like you have a collection of identities. And anytime one particular belief takes over too much of that, if you lose that aspect, it feels like you'd lose yourself. And so in my case, for 15 or 20 years, I was an athlete. That was a huge part of my, my identity. And when my playing career ended, it was like I lost this sense of self. I actually felt kind of lost for a year or two because it was like, well, for the, uh, my whole life, I've been defining myself as an athlete. What am I now? And you hear similar things. Uh, one, one of the examples I came across in the research for the book was the military. So a lot of people who are in the military, what they identify as is I'm a soldier. That's a big part of my identity. And then all of a sudden you leave, your, your career, your service ends, and you integrate back into civilian society. And how, what do you say about yourself then if you lost that aspect? And so I think one of the keys of this is to find the elements of your identity that are still serving you, or to even ask it in that way, which aspects of my identity, which bits of that collection of identities that I have are still serving me, and which aspects no longer serve me, no longer work in the current context of the current situation I find myself in. And so if, for example, you used to say, I'm a soldier, but now you're working in corporate America or you're back home with your family, you have to find elements of that that still serve you. So for example, well, you're not a soldier anymore, but maybe I'm a person who is reliable. I'm a good teammate. I'm the type of person who follows through on their mission. I'm the type of person who finishes what they start. Those are aspects of your identity that you can translate into the new situation. I've had to do that as well and find elements of my identity that I can still alter or use um, in my current context, even if the previous label no longer applies. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about habits, there are good habits and there are bad habits. The actual definition and how we come to the conclusion is actually an interesting conversation, but it's not where I wanted to go with this. Before I read your book, I had a statement that I had verbalized many times to individuals. And it was, I feel like when it comes to myself, I have discipline. I have excesses of discipline in various aspects of my life, but I have no self-control, none, zero. And I recognize that about myself. And perfect example would be, I will take the time on Sunday and I will make or meal prep eight or nine or 10 meals or whatever, 20, 30 meals. And Monday through Friday, I will be spot on zero looking to either side and I will follow. And then on Saturday, I'll have an opportunity for a brunch and I'll be huddled in the corner, shoveling down the coffee cake until it's all gone. They don't make sense together. There's no reason for that to be the case, except that I had this language that I have discipline for no self-control. And you can see how you can talk about that in other aspects of our life where we take actions that clearly don't line up with all the other actions that we've made in the, pri the prior week, right? And they're, they're clearly undoing all the work and, and energy that we've invested into a stated goal. I say that to say that in this book, you break down the science of how habits work and you specifically use language like habits are basically broken up into four parts, cue, craving, response, and reward. In the context of what I just said, what is the science of habits? Like, does that make sense? And do other people maybe experience that in different ways? Yeah. So I have a chapter in the book called The Secret to Self-Control. It's mostly about that first stage that you mentioned, the cues. 
Some of the research on self-control is interesting. You know, a lot of the time people talk about, oh, maybe if you really wanted it, then you would do it. Or if you just had enough willpower, or discipline or grit or persistence, then you would fall through. And certainly grit and willpower and persistence, they're very important qualities in life. But the takeaway from this research and some of what I mentioned in that chapter is that the people who exhibit high self-control and people who exhibit low self-control, they actually aren't that different. It's just that the people who exhibit high self-control are tempted less. And so what you're describing here is when you're in a disciplined environment, when the meals are already made, when you know exactly what you're going to make, when the only cue that you have is, hey, this prepackaged thing that I cut up on Sunday night, then yeah, you fall through just fine. But when you enter a new context, when you're in a different environment, the cues change and you're surrounded by coffee cake and pancakes and the rest of the brunch spread. Well, now all of a sudden you act just the same way everybody else does. You dive in. So the lesson here, I think, is that if you want to improve your self-control, it is a very important thing. But the most effective way to do that is actually by redesigning your environment, by designing an environment where you're tempted less, where you come across negative cues less frequently and simultaneously by creating an environment where the good habit is the path of least resistance, where you're surrounded by better options. And what you find is that it's much easier to stick to a good habit if you're surrounded by good options. Yeah, that reminds me of Jocko Willing's Discipline Equals Freedom. You set up this framework where you have the discipline built in because you've front-loaded the sacrifice, in essence. You've created this structure where it's easy to make good decisions going forward because you've made maybe that tough decision up front. So yeah, I absolutely love that. I like to refer to it as like prime the environment. You basically want to prep the environment for the next action, right? If you set the environment up so the next action is easy, then it's much easier to do the right thing when the time comes. Hey, James, one quote that really stuck out to me here in the book was, many people think they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity, right? You talked about willpower before and people have this, this script that, oh, I don't have willpower, or I don't have the motivation to lose weight. I think you're arguing clarity is the bigger issue. Well, we often have a desire to change, but we have like these very vague notions. Oh, this time it'll be different. I'm going to just eat healthy. I'll try harder, et cetera. And like, I don't want to knock on that too much. Like, certainly those are very worthy causes. But the problem is when the intention to change is vague, like this time I'll just do better, the moment of action passes us by. Uh, we don't know exactly when to act or how to act. So this section of the book where I talk about clarity, some of the strategies you can use, one is implementation intentions, another one is habit stacking, but they both kind of approach the, the problem from the same angle. Like an implementation intention, for example, it asks you to specifically fill out a sentence to state your intention to implement a behavior. So one example is like... Um, you researchers will have people who want to work out more fill out a sentence that says, I will exercise on this day at this time in this place. And just by filling that sentence out, they're two to three times more likely to follow through. And there are hundreds of studies on implementation intentions. They've been shown to increase the odds that you'll do everything from go to the polls and vote, get your flu shot, show up for your doctor's appointment, recycle, even quit smoking. The point here is that clarity makes it obvious when to act. It's less likely you'll let the moment of action pass you by. If you wake up and what you think is, oh, I hope I feel motivated to work out today, or I hope I feel motivated to write today, then yeah, all the time, you know, everybody gets busy and then the time never seems to be right. But if instead you're like, I go to the gym on Mondays at 5 p.m., well, when the clock hits five on Monday, you know where you're supposed to be. And that level of clarity 
uh, weirdly leads to more motivation. So they, they think what they lack is this willpower, discipline or motivation to take action. But often it's just a lack of knowing when and where, uh, what time and space is a habit going to occupy in your life. So with that implementation intention, is that just to yourself? Is that reinforcing the identity or is there any outward accountability with this? Well, so certainly as, as you get deeper and deeper into the book, I talk about layering the strategies together. For example, you could layer an implementation intention with like a consequence or what uh, scientists come sometimes call a commitment device. So a commitment device might be something like you go to bed tonight and you think, all right, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go for a run at 6. 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is warm. It's cold outside. You're like, well, I'll just press snooze instead. But instead, if you rewind the clock, come back to today, and you text a friend and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 6.30? Now you have a commitment device. 6 a.m. rolls around. Your bed is still warm. It's still cold outside. But if you don't get up and go for a run, you're a jerk because you leave your friend at the park all alone. And so you can combine that idea of a commitment device with an implementation intention. So you can fill out the sentence for yourself. You will say, I will go to the park at 6 a.m. and go for a run. So you clarify what you're looking to do. And then you text a friend, you layer the commitment device on top of it. And now you have a clear intention for yourself to follow and a consequence that happens if you don't follow it. This, I think, is kind of how the book sort of comes together and builds on itself. The holy grail of habit change is not like a single 1% improvement. It's like a thousand of them. And so by layering these different strategies together, environment design, commitment devices, habit stacking, et cetera, et cetera, now you start to have a very powerful system for building better habits and getting yourself to stick to things for the long run. Now, I think that sets us up really nicely as we pivot into an individual's pain point right, right now, which is one, there's a habit that I know would be beneficial for my life. I can visualize it, but I don't know how to create it and enforce it. Or two, there's a habit that I have now that I've unintentionally been doing over and over, biting my nails, overspending on my credit card, overeating, you know, all these different things that I want to remove, you know, and I think to some degree, they're the inverse of the same strategy. What does it look like for an individual that know, like they're listening to this their whole time. They're saying, I hope he talks about this. What's the underlying framework for either building this new habit or crushing this other habit that this may be ruining some aspect of your life? Yeah, good question. So let me kind of lay the context here. So you mentioned earlier that there are kind of four stages to a habit. So I divide a habit into four parts. You've got the cue, the craving, the response, and the reward. So very quick example. You walk into a kitchen, you see a plate of cookies. That's a visual cue. Cookies are sitting on the counter. Then the craving is like the prediction that you make about what the cue means. So in this case, you predict, oh, the cookies are sweet and sugary and tasty. And that prediction is actually what motivates you to walk over and perform the third step, which is the response of pick up the cookie and eat it. And then finally, there's a reward, which is, oh, it is, in fact, sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. Not every behavior in life is rewarding. Sometimes things have a consequence or sometimes they're just fairly neutral. But if a behavior is not rewarding, it's very unlikely to become a habit because your brain learns like, well, why would I repeat that? That wasn't very beneficial. So you have those, those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. Now, from those four steps, we can come up with, and answer your question, come up with four steps or four, what I call four, the four laws of behavior change, which you can follow if you want to build a good habit or if you want to break a bad one. So if you want to build a good habit, we've got one law for each stage. You really need these four things to happen. You don't, you don't need all four to happen at the same time, but the more of these that you have working in your favor, the more likely it is you're going to form the habit. So 
The first thing that you want is for your good habit to be obvious. You want it to be available, visible, easy to see. We've already talked a little bit about environment design and so on, cues. The second thing is that you want your habit to be attractive. The more attractive and appealing it is, the more you're going to feel motivated to do it. The third thing that you want is that it's easy. The easier, simpler, more convenient, frictionless a habit is, the more likely you are to stick with it. And then the fourth and final thing that you want for a good habit is for it to be satisfying. The more satisfying and enjoyable a habit is, the more it's like, hey, yeah, I should repeat this again. You get this like positive signal. And then to invert that, if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert each of those four. So for a good habit, it's make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. For a bad habit, instead of making it obvious, you make it invisible. Instead of making it attractive, you make it unattractive. Instead of making it easy, make it difficult, add steps, increase friction. And instead of making it satisfying, make it unsatisfying, add a consequence, like that example I just mentioned with uh, texting your friend to meet at the park. So the more that you make your good habits obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying, the more likely you are to stick with them. And the more that you make your bad habits invisible, unattractive, difficult, and unsatisfying, the less likely you are to fall into them. I love that, James. And, and, and you can see, you can visualize those. And, and I think it, you make this so accessible, so incredibly accessible. And the stories that you cover in here, the breadth of the research that you did, frankly, it's an entire other episode, how you uncovered all of these different aspects and brought it together to synthesize this. I want to talk about the book title, Atomic mm -hmm. Habits. At what point did you know that is the name of this book? And what's the why behind that? I chose the phrase Atomic Habits, the phrase Atomic specifically, for three reasons. The first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small, like an atom. And that is a big part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. They're kind of like these little routines, these little fundamental units that when you put them all together, you end up with the system of your daily routine. And then the third and final meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And if you put all three of those meanings together, then I think you understand sort of the narrative arc of the book and, and certainly the meaning of the title, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, 1% on top of 1%, then you end up with really powerful or remarkable results in the long run. And so I think all three of those meanings, the word atomic and the phrase atomic habits are encapsulated in the book. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like the right word. James, I wanted to talk real quick about both social norms and belonging to a tribe. We see this with the financial independence community, keeping up with the Joneses. We always hear that. But yet there's this subset of people who are bucking those social norms. I think a lot of it has to do with this FI movement that we're seeing really spread across the globe. And I know you talk about both social norms and belonging to a tribe. And I'm curious if you've thought about that in, I guess, current sense of financial independence or where you've seen that in other aspects that are going on currently. Yeah. Social norms and the social environment and the influence that it has or exerts on our habits is it's so pervasive that it's almost hard to even realize or recognize it. It's kind of like a fish in water. It's like, what is water? We're, we're just surrounded by social expectation and social norms all the time because we all exist and live in different tribes. And some of those tribes are large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be French or something like that. And some of those tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of the local CrossFit gym or 
uh, a member of a particular financial independence like Meetup or something like that. And all of those tribes come with a set of shared expectations and beliefs. So, you know, if you move into a new neighborhood, like, why do we mow our lawn and trim our hedges? To a certain degree, it feels good to have a clean, orderly yard, but mostly it feels good to have a clean yard because you don't want to be the neighbor who's judged by everybody else for being sloppy. And so it's really that social expectation that gets you to show up and perform the habit of cutting your lawn every week. And that same kind of thing happens all over the world with all kinds of habits and behaviors. And so in reference to the kind of growing of the financial independence movement, it's impossible to measure this to know exactly like how many more people are doing it now than would have otherwise. But I would imagine that a large percentage of people have, through finding out about it, performed greater saving behaviors, set themselves on this path to financial independence, and otherwise change their spending and saving habits because the community exists, because they're able to connect with a group that is different than the keeping up with the Joneses norm, where it's normal to save or to be frugal. It's normal to think on very long-term time horizons. It's normal to approach saving with a radically different mindset than what the average consumer does. And having a group where you can go to like that, I think it's a very powerful force. So no matter what habit we're talking about, though, whether it's financial or not, or health, something else, I think the key takeaway is that you want to join a group, join a tribe where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then you're going to want to perform the habit in the long run because it's going to help you belong. And belonging is one of the deepest human needs or cravings or desires, whatever you want to call it, we all are wired to belong at some level. In fact, the desire to belong is so strong that it often overpowers the desire to improve. If you have to choose between having the habits that you want and being on your own, being outside of the group, being ostracized, and having habits that you don't really want, but fitting in and being part of the tribe, most people would rather be wrong with the tribe than right and by themselves. It takes a lot of courage to step outside of the social norm. And so the more that we can create groups where something different is the norm, where something outside of uh, what you can get in other tribes is available, the more you have a space to go, a place to join. And so I think that that core idea of join a group, be a member of a tribe where the desired behavior is the normal behavior is something that you can apply to pretty much any habit. James, first of all, thank you for being so willing to go into such levels of detail in your book. I can promise you that it is not going to stop someone from wanting to pick this up. They are absolutely, you need to, you need to read every page of this book. You need to earmark it like I did. You need to incorporate this in your life. It is, I am so glad that I own this book and that I have taken notes. It's it's a constant source of reference for you me. You certainly can't return that to the library. I cannot return sure. this to the library, nor should you defile <laughs> your library books in such a way that I did with this one. Anyways, that being said, I'm curious for you, having written this, seen the feedback on this book that you have, what's next for you? Like, what do you, what do you have? What's circulating? And then for audience members that want to follow you on this journey, right? Which I'm sure you're still on. What is the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed the book and found it useful. I feel like that's the ultimate measure for me. You know, I'm, I'm just really trying to share ideas that are helpful or valuable that people can take and, and utilize in their daily life. So the answer to your question is that for the most part, uh, I'm kind of continuing the Atomic Habits train. So I'm doing a fair amount of speaking now at companies and so on uh, to talk about the concepts, uh, continuing to share the book and uh, write about habits and behavior change on my own site. 
I am toying with concepts for a second book. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I'm interested. Uh, so we'll see what kind of direction we head with respect to that. In the meantime, uh, if people are interested in finding out more about the book, you can just go to atomichabits.com. And then if you want to check out some of my other writing uh, or follow me on social media and that kind of thing, you can go to jamesclear.com. If you click on articles, uh, they're organized by category. So you can poke around and see what's interesting to you. And all the other links to social and so on are, are on that site as well. And James, before we close, we're always talking about actionable tips for the audience and, and how to get started. This reminds me of the two-minute rule that you write mm -hmm. about in the book. And I'm hoping you can just close with that for how do people get started with habit formation today? Yeah, it's great. I'm glad you decided to close with this because I feel like this is a great place for people to start. If you're looking for like one actionable thing to take away, the two-minute rule is a really good one. So the two-minute rule basically says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page. Or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. Sometimes when I say that, people, I don't know, you resist it a little bit. You know, it's kind of like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. I know I actually want to do the workout. So if this is some kind of trick, like why would I fall for it, basically? And if you feel that way, I understand where you're coming from. But I, I have this reader, Mitch. He ended up losing over 100 pounds. When he went to the gym for the first time, for the first six weeks, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds really ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. It doesn't seem like it's going to get him results. But if you step back, what you realize is that he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym for five minutes, even if or uh, four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. This, I think, is a much deeper truth about habits that often gets overlooked, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. It has to become the standard in your life, the new normal, before you have anything that you can optimize or expand. For whatever reason, when we try to change our habits, so often we're focused on finding the perfect business idea, the best workout program, the ideal diet plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way. The two-minute rule kind of helps you overcome that. It helps you get past that perfectionism and focus on the thing that matters most, which is showing up, building the uh, mastering the art of showing up and kind of building a small foundation that you can expand from. And once you do that, then you have a little raw material you can work with. Then you have something you can optimize. The two minute rule just says, take your habits, scale it down so that it's two minutes or less, make it so easy that you can't say no to it. And I think that's a great way to get started. James Clear, author of Atomic Habits. This book very well might change your life. James, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Great. Thank you for having me. To the audience, if you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on, whether it be Apple or Spotify, Stitcher, whether or not you're watching this on YouTube, press that subscribe button. Just let the provider know you're getting value from this content and you want to be here when we produce additional episodes. If your intentions don't line up with your actions, if you're in the process of engaging of self-sabotaging behavior, or you're really trying to cultivate good money habits and encourage these behaviors that you know will lead you to a better financial place. Check out this book, Atomic Habits. I think it really can have an impact and help you line up your intentions with your actions. 
If you're hearing about the concept of financial independence and you're wanting to join a tribe of people pursuing financial independence, the easiest way to do that by far, just go to chooseify.com slash start. We've actually created an illustrated guide to five. Really encapsulates the big ideas that we're trying to communicate with this show and with this platform. It'll point you to all the resources, all the episodes that you really need to have under your belt in order to implement your own financial plan. Again, to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash start. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.